I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Down the line, as we have been saying for about two months now, is my lovely co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello, Agnes Frimston. How are you? I am okay. How are you? I'm very well. I'm a lot closer to you now. I feel that emotionally as well as geographically. <gasps> are you back? I've moved back to London. Oh, Ben, full time? Yes, full time. I'm sure all the listeners have been very concerned, but yes. No longer ben, out in the sticks? No longer oh, out in, nice. in the home counties. Indeed. We've left Milton Keynes, moved back in to my nice flat in London. You know what we could and... potentially do soon? What's that? Is recording the same room, social distancing, but yeah, very responsibly. Yeah, that's sorry. Hello, listeners. We're, we're excited. <laughs> it's um, going to be bizarre to go back to a time where we're sat in a recording studio. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be really weird. But I do miss the pod trolley. Indeed, I'm not yeah, going to lie. To be soon to return, hopefully. Excellent. Hopefully. What's going on this week at Chatham House? It's our centenary. It is. It's the Chatham House centenary week on the fifth of July, nineteen twenty. A group of researchers and diplomats and just interested folk met for what was later framed as the first Chatham House meeting. And here we are, 100 years later, still talking about international affairs, how the world works, the trends of geopolitics and the forces that are shaping our world. And to celebrate that or to mark that occasion, I guess, we've put together a really, really fantastic array of events this week, which covers every kind of aspect of international affairs. We're recording this halfway through the week on Wednesday, so there are some exciting events still to come, but I've really enjoyed two in particular so far. One which brought together the leaders of think tanks all over the world, genuinely like 14, I think, different think tank leaders from all sorts of different countries to talk about what think tanks do and how the role of think tanks is likely to have to change in the 21st century and how these organisations need to think more about the shift from talking just to governments and politicians towards talking more directly to the public, which I thought was really, really interesting. And then yesterday, we had another really, really interesting event on sustainable development and governance with the former Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, which was really fascinating. Great to hear from Secretary General Ban about how he views sort of multilateralism and international cooperation in this time when it feels like there isn't really much of that going on. And are these on the web? Can people access the recordings? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the recordings are all on the website and all of the forthcoming events this week also. And did I spot, friend of the podcast, a man I quite frankly now hero worship, having interviewed him for the podcast, Alistair Darling this morning. Alistair Darling was indeed speaking at Chatham House this morning on international economic cooperation and COVID-19. That is right. And and yeah, I mean, I would recommend listeners go back to one of our earlier episodes, the double Alistair episode where we interviewed both Lord Darling and Tony Blair's former spin doctor, Alistair Campbell. It's great that there's just so much content going on this week. So I think if you can, have a look at the website and see if anything takes your fancy. Absolutely. But... We have a great podcast for you today, don't we? 
Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. This one, I think, is going to be a bit of a cracker. Tell us what we're doing, Agnes. Well, you don't turn 100 very often. So we thought we'd mark it by having a look at a bit of the history of Chatham House. So we were lucky enough to be joined by Malcolm Madden, who is one of the librarians at Chatham House and one of the longest serving members of staff too. And he talked us through why Chatham House started, why we're in the building, what happened about the rule, why, like how the rule was set up. We also asked him about the rumours about the ghost. So that was great. And then after that, we have a real treat for you. I would argue, Ben, would you, would you agree? I certainly would. In that... A great selection of colleagues from around the house have told us about what event that they have most enjoyed having seen at Chatham House within their department or a bit more broadly. And who of the amazing array of speakers that Chatham House has had over the last hundred years in the past, they wish they'd been able to see. And it's a really interesting, really great array of choices and nice to hear some voices that aren't just ours, Ben, I suppose. And then Ben and I have a maybe a brief discussion about our favourite events. Lovely. Let's have a listen. Okay, so here we are on the 7th of July 2020 in Chatham House Centenary Week. Super exciting. Chatham House is 100 years old, 100 years in two days. The anniversary of the first ever meeting of Chatham House took place on the 5th of July back in 1920. And we're joined today to have a bit of a chat about the history of the Institute and our origin story, as it were, by Malcolm Madden, who is one of our wonderful librarians at Chatham House. Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Hello. And I've got Agnes with me, obviously, as ever. Hello. Um, so Malcolm, obviously, yeah, I mentioned that the first meeting in 1920, but the origins of Chatham House go back a little bit before then. Could you maybe tell us about where the idea for the Institute came from? Well, the Institute came out of the aftermath of the First World War. When the war ended, it ended in 1918, there was a, a peace conference held in, in Paris in 1919. And there were diplomats from all around the world who attended the conference including senior diplomats from the US and Britain. And one of our diplomats, um, Lionel Curtis, had the idea that it was important to look at international relations in a new way, objectively and, and scientifically, that really hadn't been done previously. And so he came up with the idea of setting up an institute. Initially, he, he wanted it to be one institute that was an international format with the Americans. But ultimately, various institutes were set up in America, in the UK, around the world to look at international relations, to try and um, solve any problems that might arise. And how did that go? Well, the, the idea, it came after the end of the First World War, the idea was to prevent any further world war. So perhaps it didn't work out quite as well as intended, but the format was there for collaboration and uh, international cooperation, which, which there hadn't really been a format like that before. We are obviously the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Why was Chatham House, the building, picked as a location to be hosted in? Well, we started off in, in, a, in a small way, as you might imagine. And the premises at Chatham House were in central London, a prime spot in central London. Originally, where the Institute started off with just one room, 
a couple of miles away with two, uh, two people working there. The institute grew gradually. And after a couple of years, the two, the two ladies who worked at the institute put themselves in a taxi and moved to other premises where there were like half a dozen rooms. By 1923, the institute was taking off and we did need bigger premises. At that point, number 10 St. James's Square became available and two Canadian benefactors, uh, Colonel and Mrs. Leonard, were able to provide the £50,000 to buy and uh, refurbish number 10 St. James's Square. That's how we ended up there. And the reason it's called Chatham House is number 10 St. James's Square has had three prime ministers living there. And Ben and Agnes, can you tell me who those three prime ministers are? Oh, we asked the questions. We asked the questions. So, um, would you say they were William Pitt the Elder, Edward Stanley, and William Gladstone? That's exactly what I was going to guess. Of, of I all of the say that. <laughs> literally, just out just of out my head. So, so <laughs> apart from um, Ten Downing Streets, where the Prime Minister lives, Chatham House is the house in London that's had more Prime Ministers live there than uh, any other house. Now, the benefactors who provided money for the institute to move to St James's Square were, as I said, Canadians, and they were proud of their Canadian and British heritage. And they wanted to acknowledge that in some way. Now, the first Prime Minister to have lived in the house, William Pitt the Elder, was also called the Earl of Chatham. And he was Prime Minister when, let's say, um, the UK was establishing itself in Canada, which is a polite way of saying we were fighting the French in Canada. And to, to uh, acknowledge that link between the UK and Canada, the Leonards asked for the house to be named after William Pitt. And so it was called Chatham House. And what were the people that worked for Chatham House doing in these early years? How were they sort of organising their activities? Well, the meetings that take place in Chatham House now are an important element of our function. There were meetings there, but we didn't have the research programmes that exists now until sort of late the late 1920s about 1929 there was a report an internal report written to uh, look at how the organization functioned and at that stage we got the sort of embryonic system that we have now of research programs the meetings uh, departments and the uh, various administrative roles that are necessary so who were the sort of founding members at this point you know was there like an overseeing council of um, there, were, uh, there were a number of founders. We have the, the gentleman that organised the debate at the Paris Peace Conference, which led to the formation of the Institute, was Lionel Curtis. Um, before the First World War, he and a number, a number of other people had worked together in South Africa, administering the governance there. They came back to London, and there was a group of them, half a dozen, ten people maybe, who oversaw the establishment and initial running of the of the institute? So it was John Power is another name we've mentioned. He provided the funds for the first purpose-built meeting hall in Chatham House, and there were uh, a number of other individuals who, as I say, took over the initial running of the institute. Also. I think within the international policy world, we're now very used to the idea of think tanks and NGOs working on this sort of stuff. But was anybody else doing this at the same time? Or was, was Chatham House a sort of outlier? At well, I think that's the whole point about the Institute, the, the Royal Institute. 
and also in, in the US, the Council for Foreign Relations, that this hadn't been done before. And the people at the Paris Peace Conference wanted a new way of um, analysing international relations. And as you say, there are various universities, university departments that also look at international relations um, systematically now, scientifically. But at the time, no one did. So we were set up purposely to encourage and facilitate the study of international affairs to promote the exchange of information and thoughts and also to publish and disseminate ideas and the activities of, um, of this research. One of the main things that Chatham House is known for today, beyond the kind of policy world, is, is the Chatham House rule or Chatham House rules, as we often hear people invoke. Could you tell us a bit about where the rule came from? And could you maybe, to start with, just explain that there is one and, and what that one rule is? <laughs> Well, the rule, as you say, is just one rule, although it's often, <laughs> people often do talk about Chatham's rules in the plural. The current, the rule has been changed um, slightly over the years. Uh, the full text of it is on, is on our website. It came into being in, in 1927. It was formally recognised as the Chatham's rule in 1927. And basically, it's there to uh, encourage uh, trusted and open dialogue and idea sharing. And I think you can sort of encapsulate it by saying that it's there to reveal what is said in a meeting, but not who said it. So we want to know what people say, and we want to give people the freedom to say what they think. And sometimes they may prefer to maintain their anonymity, and that gives them greater freedom to say what they think. It's used in Chatham House, obviously, but it's travelled throughout the world and lots of major organisations use it and also some smaller organisations. I had a phone call once from a gardening club and their secretary was uh, wanted to invoke the rule at one of their meetings and asked me to explain it to them. And why was the rule created at that point, do you think? Was it about being able to like have public record keeping of discussions or more, more sort of openness? or? Well, I think it's... It just allowed people to um, express their views without fear of or criticism. I mean, now you can have a look, you can see Twitter, people express themselves and they can be deluged by criticism. I mean, back in 1927, there is nothing like that, but it's still, the principle is the same. So sometimes people may feel uh, reticent to express themselves fully, if they, they're, they're open to personal you know, criticism and ridicule or worse. And so it was, it was just a way of allowing open and free discussion. Does it have an expiry date or is there an issue with the way that things were recorded in the past and what we can release now or not? Or especially like as a librarian and sort of record keeper of this stuff. How are we dealing with that? Oh, that's a good question. So... Often with governments and official documents, there may be uh, official documents are kept secret for a number of years, but there is an expiry date, as you, as you suggest, 30 years, 50 years, 60 years. With uh, the Chatham House rule, when it was established, there was no cut-off date. So something that was produced um, under the Chatham House rule in, in 1920, in 1996, 1997, is still under the Chatham House rule, and the criteria of not divulging 
the source of the information is still valid. Um, the council has looked at this and decided that the rule should be kept without a, a cut-off date. But I think there are exceptions that have been made over the years, or more recently, because some things have crept into the public domain that have been theoretically been under the rule. And so there is a slight leakage, which is, I think, unavoidable over the years. But the, the principle of the rule remains that there's, there's no cut-off date. Fast forward a bit now, take us up into the Second World War. We were speaking earlier about the idea that these think tanks were set up with a view of, of sort of averting major crises like world wars in the future. And that sadly, in 1939, that, that proved to be a failure, or at least it proved to be sort of out of the hands of the think tank community. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about how Chatham House was involved in the war effort in the Second World War? I suppose one of the major ways it was involved was with the pest cutting service. Now, we, the Chatham House set up a pest cutting unit in the 1920s, and this would collate newspaper cuttings from around the world, and they'd be analysed, they'd be sorted, they'd be grouped together, they'd be cross-referenced. They'd be a great source of uh, information and opinion from around the world. Come the war, most of Chatham House, to escape the Blitz, they decanted to Balliol College in, in Oxford. And they carried on this newspaper cutting service, concentrating largely on uh, newspapers from occupied Europe. And they were able to gather these newspapers through neutral countries like Switzerland and Sweden. And they would analyse the, the events in Europe and they'd be able to advise the government about how the war was progressing and this was eventually taken over fully by the government for a couple of years and was run by the government rather than Chatham House but it was Chatham House personnel who were working in Oxford in Baylor College during the war to help the war efforts in that way. Can I just ask what sort of scale are we talking about how many people were working in press cuttings at that point you know ish like we're talking 20 uh, yeah I think we're talking uh, sort of in the uh, in the 20s something like that it's it's quite like it was quite a labor-intensive operation and the press cuttings themselves lasted in chatham house until the late 1990s and the, the, the way it works is that the uh, librarians would initially look through the newspapers they'd mark up newspapers these papers would be passed to people who would physically cut out the papers they would fold the papers in a very clever origami type way stick them to backing papers and they the newspaper Article could then be passed back to the librarians, would then analyse them and collate them, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And it, there was a lot of, uh, sort of intellectual input into the analysis and the arrangements of the newspaper files and cousins' collections. Is this association with the government and the Foreign Office at, at this time during the Second World War, is, is that why people quite often sort of associate Chatham House with the government? I feel like whenever I sort of say what I do. If, if people ask me, oh, what do you do as a job? And I say, oh, I work at Chatham House. If they've heard of Chatham House, they always follow up and say, oh, so that's the government-like department, right? And is that where you think that kind of link came in or is that something that was a lot earlier? I don't think it's specifically to do with the government's involvement during the war. 
I think it's sort of more general than that. I mean, in 1926, we were given our Royal Charter. And when we were set up in 1920, we were the the British Institute of New Science Affairs. In 1926, we became the the Royal Institute. And since then, the Sovereign has always been our our patron. So having a Royal um, prefix, I think, allows people to imagine we have some uh, official connections. I mean, sadly, as far as our pensions are concerned, we're not a government department. But <laughs> I think also possibly in, in other countries, that similar organisations, similar research institutes may have more formal and closer links to their governments. And so people may assume that here, similarly, there's a closer relationship and maybe more financial backing from the government. We've been around for 100 years now, Malcolm. I don't know if you know, mm. our centenary. The Institute has changed a lot in that time. It's grown massively, ups and downs stuff. But you are the librarian in Chatham House. You have access to all of our archive and, you know, everything about the building. In researching this sort of stuff, have you come across anything that particularly like stood out for you or an individual or, I don't know, something that you were surprised by? Well, I don't know whether that I'm surprised, but I think what does strike me is just the different attitude just physically to the, the building that we have now, because we, um, we're in we Chatham House in the 10th St. James' Square. It was um, added to in, in, during the Second World War by the house next door, number nine. And the building physically has been transformed. At the moment, nowadays, in Britain, Historic buildings are overseen by uh, English heritage, and you, you've got to maintain the character of historic buildings. But back in the day, you could knock them about and rip historic fitting out and change them uh, however much you wanted. And looking back at some old photographs of the buildings, it's sort of sad to see that some of the uh, some of the original fittings have been lost. And that is just so different to how we exist nowadays. And it's very difficult to change the fabric of the building. Otherwise, you can look back and see things are, are cyclical in the life of the Institute, like everywhere else. The Institute grows. And then in the 1990s, we had um, some financial problems. Now we are in much better health and shape. And we are, have um, grown and our research programs have uh, developed. And our online presence is very important to us. So you can see how the institute itself and institutes generally do change and um, mature. And I guess one constant for the whole of pretty much the whole of this hundred year period has been that we have a library. How do you think being a librarian has changed now? How do you think that what you do now would be recognised by the people who were librarians at Chatham House in the 20s? Well, I think we're very lucky in Chatham House to have a library that's uh, well-resourced. Looking, coming into the library, it's the library reading room is, it's fairly traditional look to it. And I myself look after the, the books that are on the shelves, looking at the, uh, trying to keep the, the focus and the quality of the material. So as far as the books are concerned on the shelves, you know, a librarian would recognise that. And although the number of personnel in the library has shrunk, over the years, the resources that are available now have expanded a number of folds, and we have so many online resources that are available, not just in the building, but externally to people around the country, around the world. And so we still provide access to information to people. 
and we still buy books. So I think the library role fundamentally is the same, although the uh, resources that we use have changed considerably. So we've got just a couple more questions, Malcolm, and we're going to, we, we do want to, to think a bit more about the history, but I wanted to just ask you before, I'm going to force you to do some speculation. And mm-hmm. I'd like to know what you think Chatham House is going to look like in a hundred years time. I mean, it could be for the whole institute, but it could also be for the library. I don't mind. Do you think we'll have a library in a hundred years time? I certainly hope so. But what do you reckon? Crystal ball this for us. Okay, well, in a hundred years time, I suppose from a personal point of view, I'd like to think that the three of us would be happily retired, sunning ourselves on a Mediterranean beach somewhere. I think the interest has proved remarkably durable. It's proved it can change and adapt to changing situations. I, th- I think one of the great things about Chatham House is, is its location in London. I think there'll always be a need for people to meet in person. I think technolo- technological developments rather than limiting what Chatham House is able to do in a physical environment, will just enhance it. And so I can see the library will exist in some shape or form because valid information and knowledge will always be needed for researchers. So I can see a bright future for Chatham House. In your time, what's been the best event or or the best speaker that you've heard? And who maybe maybe also thinking back into our history, who would you have loved to have seen speak at Chatham House? <laughs> I think one of the greatest visitors we've had is uh, in, in the post-war years is Margaret Thatcher, because she's been so influential in Britain and so influential in the world. And she's someone who has uh, mixed up the environment and made people think anew, think afresh about attitudes and opinions. So I think she is very important in UK history and the way Chatham House has evolved along with UK um, politics and history. The most serious question of like the entire podcast. I hope you're ready. Uh-huh. There is a Chatham House ghost. Have you seen it? Who is the ghost? Well, we're not sure about the ghost, who it might be. Some people say the ghost is of a uh, a maid who lived and died on the third floor. Uh, I think the most recent example of um, the ghost manifestation was a security guard just a, a year or two back who found himself alone on the fourth floor, very modern open plan office. And uh, of, an e- of an evening, eight or nine o'clock in the evening, He was petrified. He couldn't move because of presence he felt. Now, that was just a year or two back. That was a young guy that was on the modern office floor, on the fourth floor. Maybe maybe it was the maid who wandered up there to do a bit of cleaning at seven o'clock at night. Who knows? But I don't think I have experienced I've experienced a few cold chills run down my spine in Chatham House, but maybe not because of a ghost. What a great way to end, cold chills. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us today to tell us a bit about the history of Chatham House. My pleasure.
Lovely stuff. Thank you again to Malcolm Madden, our librarian there, for that potted history of Chatham House. There's a, so much to get through, but I think that we we sort of dispelled some of the myths and explained our origin story a bit there, Agnes. Definitely. But what's next, Ben? Coming up next, we've got something a bit different for you. Obviously, one of the main activities that Chatham House is involved with is convening events with our own researchers, but also just the big names that work in international affairs across the world. And every year the Institute runs at least 300, I think maybe more events, public and private events. And that's quite a lot to get through. Obviously we didn't attend all of them either. So what we thought we'd do is we would ask some of our colleagues for their highlights since they've been working at Chatham House. So what you're about to hear is a nice selection of some of those highlights. We asked our colleagues from all sorts of different departments to tell us the speakers that they've most enjoyed hearing at Chatham House during their time and the events that they've most enjoyed running, but also the high profile people that they would have loved to have heard when they visited Chatham House since our founding. So I hope you enjoy listening. We're gonna kick off first with friend of the pod, Yusuf Hassan. I think my favorite event has to be the Africa Programs mini conference on mine clearance in Angola, which brought together leaders from across the political realm, from across the conservation world, mine clearance experts and royalty. His Royal Highness the Duke of Sussex, Prince Harry, provided keynote remarks because, of course, demining is an issue that is very close to his heart and was close to the heart of his mother, Princess Diana. The event was such an inspiration to be part of, and I think the the crowning moment was when the Angolan government chose to use the event and the Chatham House stage as a platform to announce that they were providing $60 million of funding to demining efforts in the country, which I felt was was such a really, really beautiful thing to see because of the effect it would have on people's lives. And the event or the speaker that I would have loved to have witnessed, um, I think it has to be Nelson Mandela. I think there are very few that would have had an impact like Mandela because, of course, uh, after nearly three decades in prison, he took the lead, he took the initiative and reconciled South Africa as a country. Very few, I think, would have had the mental toughness to be able to do that and I think is a great example as to what international affairs is all about. Hello, my name is Esther Naylor and I work for the International Security Programme at Chatham House. An event which stands out to me during my time at the programme is one we held earlier in 2020 on implementing the Commonwealth Cybersecurity Agenda. It was great to see the different perspectives of countries' experience of cybersecurity and hearing from the Gambian ICT Minister Ibrima Sela and from Senator Lynette Holder from Barbados. Somebody who I would have loved to have heard from at Chatham House is Eliza Manningambula, who was Director General of the UK Security Service, MI5, between 2002 and 2007. She's currently President of Chatham House, but I think it would have been fascinating to have heard from her off the record about what technology and security implications were present during this period. 
Hello, my name is Alan Phillips, editor of The World Today, a magazine published by Chatham House. We've been going since 1945, so it's our 75th anniversary this year. The favourite event which I've been involved in was when we handed out a prize to the first winner of our school writing competition, which we run with the Financial Times. Uh, when she arrived, she was a bit tired and nervous, but luckily our chairman, Jim O'Neill, managed to drive away her stage fright. When she got up on the stage, she spoke very calmly and said lots of wonderful things. As for the speaker I would have most liked to have met, uh, there can be only one, and that's Mahatma Gandhi. I'm quite old, but not quite old enough to have seen him, but that would have been a memorable occasion. Other memorable occasions, uh, I recall, is when the Queen came most recently, she had not been announced. No one knew she was coming. There had been some speeches and then the audience started to get up and go and the staff were going around saying, I really think you should stay, you know, it's worth staying. And then the Queen came to everyone's surprise. That was a moment of drama, which I won't forget. Hi, I'm Zara Berry and I'm Deputy Head of Individual Membership here at Chasm House. Since I've been here, I'd have to say my favourite event was the 2013 Chatham House Prize, which was awarded to Hillary Clinton. It was a fantastic event, and I'll never forget hearing her speech that day or meeting her and President Clinton at the event. On that theme, being a huge fan of US politics, I would love to see the Obamas at Chatham House. Not only would it be a very well-received event to put on for our members, but I'm sure both Michelle Obama and President Obama would make a valuable contribution to the Institute's wider dialogue. My name is James Nixie, and I'm the director of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. I've been at Chatham House for 20 years, the exact amount of time that Vladimir Putin has been president of Russia. Uh, I met Mikhail Gorbachev. He visited Chatham House in the early 2000s. He had always been a hero of mine growing up in the 1980s. I said exactly those words to him. You've always been a hero of mine. That's all I said to him. And he just laughed out loud and slapped me on the back. And that was it. It was quite a moment. But perhaps to be um, a bit more precise with my answer, then I'll bring it right up to date, actually. Uh, in December of 2019, we had just published a report on Kazakhstan. And the Kazakh government were generous enough, engaged enough, um, willing enough to send a high-level delegation over from Kazakhstan to talk about the report and to have a very equitable discussion about it. So that felt very fulfilling. And the final question is, who is a speaker related to your program's work who you would most like to have seen when they visited Chatham House? And I'd have to say probably Andrei Sakharov, obviously scientist, human rights defender, dissident. I'm Gleda. I work as a senior research fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme. I remember a meeting that was really formative early on in my career at Chatham House where we worked with the China Institute of International Studies in Beijing on a workshop with some senior Russian and Chinese officials and experts discussing energy cooperation. And it was a tough meeting because we were working across three very different cultures and dealing with some sensitive issues, and it really taught me a lot. Now, who would I have most wanted to hear speak at Chatham House. Well, it has to be Sir David Attenborough. And in fact, I did hear him speak when his team at the BBC won the Chatham House Prize for their work on the Blue Planet series uh, last November. I was lucky enough to attend the dinner afterwards. And I did 
pluck up the courage to go over to his table and tell him how much uh, my son and I enjoyed his programs. And he held my hand and gave me a lovely smile. So I'll always remember that as, as one of the highlights of my time at Chatham House. Hi, I'm Camille Hussain. I'm the head of the members events and conferences team at Chatham House. We work with research programs across the Institute. And uh, the favorite event that I've been involved in is probably either one of the London or Berlin conferences, partly because it brings together a broad international community of people. And it, we get to see familiar faces who aren't able to join us as regularly as other colleagues and other members. But um, it demonstrates to me the truly international appeal and the global community that Chatham House is able to bring together. In terms of speakers, there are so many that I've had the privilege of seeing. So without just naming a long list of people, the one person who I probably would have liked to have seen, but spoken to Chanamas before I was a member of this organization is probably either Mikhail Gorbachev or Nelson Mandela, simply because both are iconic figures that I remember witnessing when I was growing up, making significant changes in the world and changes that continue to resonate to today. I'm Joma and I work in the communications and publishing department at Chatham House, where I'm deputy editor for research publications. I've worked at Chatham House for a little over five years and I thought that rather than single out a favourite event from among the many that I've had the great good fortune to attend in my time at the Institute, although to name drop shamelessly, I'm going to say that being in the same room as Sir David Attenborough, the brilliant members of BBC Studios Natural History Unit and the Queen late last year definitely takes some beating. I wanted to point to those events that have been attended by sixth formers and other school students. Their presence in the audience and engagement with speakers really changes the quality of the discussion. In particular, when school students ask a question, it's because they really, really want to know the answer. And the responses they get are genuinely informative and say a great deal about the person who's answering their question. And who would I really like to have heard speak at Chatham House? From the many thousands of people who've come to the Institute over the past century, I think it would have to be Nelson Mandela, who spoke at a Chatham House event in July 1996. So that was around six years after he was released from prison and about two years into his presidency. When I was thinking about this question, I looked at some of the footage from his state visit to the UK in that month, and the reception he received is astonishingly moving. And so to have had the opportunity to be in the same room at that time as somebody who represented so much for the achievements of the long struggle against apartheid, for national reconciliation and for the standing of a democratic South Africa in the region and the world can only have been extraordinary. Thanks so much to our colleagues for giving us their time and thoughts. But Ben, now you and I need to discuss this. Oh, you're going to put what? us on the spot. Yeah. So, top three speakers that you've seen since you've been at Chatham House. How long have you worked at Chatham House now? I have worked at Chatham House for just over five years. Can't quite no way. I started in 2016. So does that mean four years? That, that means four years, yeah. 
yeah, maths. We're, we're good, aren't we? Oh, jeez. Yeah, four years. <laughs> it um, seems like just yesterday that I was joining Chatham House <laughs> as an impressionable part-time digital marketing assistant. Okay, so you've you've been here for a while. You've seen some events. Top three. All right, I'll run you through top three. And I guess I'll do it in the order, the most recent, and then we'll go backwards. Um, I wonder if we're going to have the same. It's going to be interesting. Uh, this is going to be on. interesting. So the most recent one that I felt was really, really interesting, partly because it was something that I just knew very little about, was an event that we ran in March this year on inclusive peace building, which brought together policymakers who work on peace and security and considered how to increase the opportunities for women's participation in post-conflict peace building. And it was really interesting because it's not something that I have thought much about, but it was in the way that really good Chatham House events are, it brought something that could be quite theoretical and conceptual and made it accessible to someone like me who doesn't have the kind of expert grounding in it. And I think one of the particular bits that sort of stood out for me from that event was a um, section that one of the panellists, Dr. Awino Oketch from SOAS, she had a fantastic quote, which I'll probably get wrong, but will attempt to paraphrase, where she sort of said, these discussions shouldn't be just about who is around the table at these conversations. It should be about what the problem is with the table in the first place. And we should be trying to build a new one, <laughs> which is a really, really interesting way of thinking about it. So that was one there. I do think that's one of the things that Chatham House always does so well is bringing together a group of people to discuss topics that you didn't realise were important, but really are. Number two, Ben. Number two. We're going to go back a little way to the London conference in 2018. The London Conference is Chatham House's annual conference, which brings together policymakers from all over the world to talk about the big issues of the day. And I remember it was the first time that I had managed to worm my way into the after event dinner. Who got you a place I can't at that remember. Then? I can't remember. I think it might uh, have been. Did a, somebody who wangled it for you? Um, I think the person that wangled it for me might work for the uh, for the Chatham House magazine, The World Today, but I can't did, remember her relationship to me or connection in any way. Um, yeah. Do tweet us if anybody knows. It go on, was go on. Agnes Frimston, and I remain eternally grateful because <laughs> the after dinner speech at this conference dinner was given by the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and she just kind of blew us away, I think it would be fair to say. She spoke about the position of women in society, she spoke about feminism, and she spoke about the importance of storytelling and how storytelling resonates in politics and there's a video of the event on the Chatham House website and it was just it's one of those things that is just so endlessly quotable so many great sound bites but she spoke with such passion and in, at some points anger as well and it was something that was really really inspiring to watch so Chimamanda um, is event number two. I wish I had a buzzer or something because we have doubled up on that um, ah. She she's one of my talks too and it was also, I mean, people were crying after that speech. You know, it was incredibly moving. And she was talking to an audience that weren't necessarily hugely aware of her. And she is obviously an amazing author, but having an astonishingly impressive, like eloquent, angry woman telling the foreign policy world 
what they need to address, especially when it comes to gender and women's rights and access to education and all of that. It was it was so powerful. Would be my view too. Absolutely. And number three, yeah, then she was great. And so number three again. This is in no particular order because we're just going back in time. But this was an event from May 2017. So I'd not actually been at Chatham House for very long. And I was having a bit of a identity crisis because my background at university was history and English literature. And now I was working at this quite serious policy institute where everyone talks about data and theory. And it's quite difficult sometimes to to feel like you belong in those conversations. But there was an amazing event with the historian Margaret Macmillan, who we've also spoken to on undercurrents in the past, which was all about thinking through the role that historians can play in shaping foreign policy today. And there was a really interesting panel. Margaret Macmillan was one of them, Helen McCarthy from Queen Mary University of London, and uh, Christopher Mayer, who is the former ambassador of the UK to the United States. And it was just, I don't know, it was very affirming because it, it sort of said to me, you know, history isn't something that's just kind of dusty old books in libraries. It's not something that's a kind of dead subject. It's something that absolutely has a role to play in these debates. And if you don't understand history, you don't understand where you can go in the future, which sounds like a, an enormous cliche, but it was just great to sit and listen. So that is yeah. my third. So there we go. I've rambled loads about the events that I've enjoyed, but Agnes, the onus is now on you. Tell us. We know we've already shared... Chimamanda as a great Chatham House memory. But what are your top three? Well, Ben, I have been at Chatham House a bit longer than you. So I'm actually not going to give you three. I'm going to go a bit over because you uh, had a really nice split between content and speakers. But because I've been at Chatham House for so long, I'm sticking to speakers, the ones that stick out. So there were some events that basically completely changed my view of the individual mm. um, in a way that I wasn't expecting. So, for example, Hillary Clinton, when she came to Chatham House in 2013 okay. to accept the Chatham House Prize, I was never hugely interested in her. But honestly, she walks into a room and she's dynamic. I would not have expected that. Then... There were the sort of events where the speaker created an energy in the hall and the room that felt electric, not necessarily positive in some mm. ways. So for me, one that stands out was in 2016, Nigel Lawson came and gave a speech basically calling for Brexit through the referendum, you know, to a room full of largely pro-European foreign policy experts. And it was sparky i would say in that sense again same as benjamin Netanyahu coming in 2017 these aren't necessarily my heroes but they were incredibly impressive figures they were quite intimidating in some ways but dynamic in a way that i hadn't really expected then there's my favorite mad pairing event from 2015 which was on drugs and the war against drugs and it was Nick Clegg, who was then Deputy Prime Minister of the UK, and Richard Branson, a dynamic duo you didn't know yet about this stuff together. Um, and then the last one are the heroes that actually didn't disappoint. John Kerry, when he came to Chatham House in 
2016 was just astonishing. The way that he talked about the Iran deal, he was really inspiring. He didn't let me down. And also, what a profile. Um, <laughs> Chimamanda as well, as we spoke about earlier, 2018. And then, my favourite, Ben. This wasn't an event. I just saw him on the stairs. I think he was going into a round table or a dinner. Mark Carney. What? Mark Carney, my hero, ex-governor of the Bank of England. But, you know, I passed him on the stairs and that was enough for me. So that's my roundup, Ben. Any controversy there? Solid. I mean, I think some people may be surprised by the last one, but (laughs) it's no surprise to me as someone who has sat in the open plan office of the fourth floor of Chatham House for long enough to realise that everyone in the communications department seems to have a thing about Mark Carney. It's quite gendered, I'd say. Mm-hmm. The the fandom of Mark Carney. Look, he's a dreamboat. So that is my roundup of people. But it's also just, there are lots of people that I didn't expect to come across um, as they did. Either they were less impressive than I thought they might be. Obviously, I'm not going to name any names. Or they were so charismatic in person in a way that just doesn't come across often on film or in interviews. So, yeah, it's a great place, Chatham House, isn't it? We're lucky to have it. And that's a cracking list, Agnes. Thank you. I've done some thinking. I did some thinking. Well, we should probably round up now, shouldn't we? I suppose we should. I mean, that's all for this week. We will be back next week with some more exciting content. Absolutely. And if you enjoyed this episode or previous episodes of Undercurrents, then please leave us a review. Share the podcast with your friends and your social media followers. And please, if you have any ideas for topics that you'd like us to cover, just email us at undercurrents at chathamhouse.org and we will gladly hear your thoughts, any feedback at all that you want to give us. And yeah, we will see you next week. In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Undercurrents.